You're listening to Booth One. Hello, podcast fans, and welcome to Booth One. Gary Zabinski and Frank Taranjo, your hosts here. Welcome back, Frank. How are your speech competition travels? I haven't seen you in a while. Most of my weekends have been taken up. First of all, it was the uh, Illinois High School Association speech tournaments, the regional, and then the sectional, and then the state. To be Um, clear, you were not actually competing in them. You you actually judged judged them, right? Yes, I was judging. You're not a you know a lapsed (laughs) high school student or something. No, no. I finished high school, but although. I coached high school at Fenton High School and University High School in Normal, Illinois, for years, and I did coach all of these events. It's it's really a wonderful thing where students read poetry, or they read prose, or they do do it acting, or they do extemporaneous speaking, or impromptu speaking. There's 15 different categories that the students can do, and so I judged the regional out in Gurnee, I judged a sectional in Downers Grove, and then I judged the state that was in Peoria. You're very much in demand as a judge uh, in your retirement I actually, <laughs> actually am. I you're mean, I you're kind get, of busy for a retired guy. Yeah, and I get multiple calls to judge, and I'm always delighted that they want me, but I had some success, quite a bit of success, when I coached high school, sure. and so they remember that. Sure. And they also like someone who has not been around the circuit for the school year, because there's a lot of invitational tournaments. In February is when the regional, sectional, and state series are. So I have seen nothing. So you're a very objective judge. Yes, yes. There are you know all these invitationals that people have seen, oh, she's really good, or he's really good, and these are the big ones that everyone's looking for. And they're all the same to me when they walk they in. Don't want, don't they don't want the judges to be tainted by any... They don't. They know that I also coached on the college level, too, so I've seen lots and lots of stuff. Right after that starts the drama competition and the group and terp competition, and this is where you do a 40-minute cutting of a play. Again, you go to the sectional, the winners go to state, and the same thing in group interpretation, which is a little bit more presentational in the sense that you can take a cutting from something, a, a short story, you can compile things built around a theme, right. and then you perform in kind of like a choir room sort of thing. You can have set pieces, and you can have certain kind of uniform oh, really? costumes. Set yeah. pieces. You can, and, yeah. you can do it. I judge drama at the sectional, and I saw some really good plays. In fact, the show I saw at sectional ended up winning the state championship. What was that? That was called When Father Comes Home from the War by Susie Laurie Parks. Sure. Thornton High School. Terrific. And then I had the great honor of judging the finals at state, where there are 18 shows in group and terp that make it to state, and the top six go into the finals, and they were all radically different, all wonderful, from If Beale Street Could Talk to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I mean, (laughs) the movie Eighth Grade that came out recently, a school did that that I thought was phenomenal. They were all phenomenal. Did they finally pick a winner in this category? Yes, they did. It was a big, long, complicated title. It was done by Oakland High School. I I can't even remember the title of it. It it was about literacy and about this kid couldn't read. Actually, it was Sufjan Stevens, if you know him. He's the guy who did the music for Call Me By Your Name. Mm. And it's a, a thing that he wrote about how he couldn't read up into fifth and sixth you know, grade. It was very effective. And I did go to Oklahoma High School. The rankings were 11225. 
I gave it the five. <laughs> so there was no prejudice there. But I thought it was fantastic. Like I said, all six of them were like, ah. They were just great. There was uh, marvelous. A, a group doing uh, Cabin in the Sky, mm. this old Lena Horne piece yeah. that I thought was yeah. just wonderful. It was, really, it was really a joy to watch. It was really a Well, pleasure. great to have you back. As always, Frank, you know, Booth One is the podcast where we celebrate the art of lively conversation about the arts and popular culture. We've been busy theater goers lately, even though you haven't been around on our recording days because you've been busy. You have been coming to the theater. And we're going to talk about a few of the shows we've seen. Well, let's start with the freshest in our minds, which we just got back to the studio from seeing this afternoon. We went to the North Light Theater, which is not far from our studios here in Evanston, to see a play called Landladies. Mm -hmm. Landladies. It's a three-hander, three characters, and all three of the actors were marvelous. Terrific. I'm going to mention them. Shanisha Davis, Leah Carpell, mm-hmm. and Julian Parker. Mm. Well, Julian Parker, I'm a huge fan of. Saw him in Passover, saw him in Smart People, up at Writers um, not too long ago. What did you think of this play? It's a play about rather ordinary everyday kind of people. Yeah, it's a world premiere, too. And a world premiere. And we should also say that it's still performing probably after the podcast goes up, so I think it goes until... April 20th. April 20th, so I I really recommend people see see it. it. What I loved about this show was all three people are very flawed and in some ways not very nice people and you really like them a lot. <laughs> and that's yeah, hard to pull funny? off. It's es- hard for a playwright to pull off, but it's hard for an actor to Especially Julian Parker's character, yeah, yeah. who's quite dangerous on stage. There's mm-hmm. a lot of potential for some serious violence, which we never see, thank God. Right. But we see the evidence of it at times. Mm-hmm. Well, what's interesting and, and is he's yeah. just remarkable the way he just prowls around that apartment. He does, and we hear about these things that he's done, and we see the results of some of the things he's done. But we see him as a pussycat in the show. His reputation precedes him, but there's certain scenes towards the end where he really is pleading for something, and you just feel for him, even though you know what he's done. Very difficult to pull off, but really wonderful to watch. Let me tell the listeners a little what this play is about. It opens with these two female characters coming into a rather shabby, some would say slumlord-like apartment, mm-hmm. which she describes as furnished, even though there's just a tattered sofa right. and a broken chair on the floor right. and a hole in the wooden floor that looks down to the apartment below where another neighbor lives that they right. that they talk to now and then. One woman named Marty, she is the landlord. She yep. owns this building, and she's trying to rent it to Christine, played by Leah Carpell, mm-hmm. who is a friend of yours. Yeah, I've known More than a Leah friend of yours. since she was born. <laughs> She's a daughter of two grad school friends of mine and who I have kept in touch with all those years and watched her grow up and to be a really a remarkable young lady. Well, her character, Christine, has a young daughter who we don't see for seven-eighths of the play, and then she makes a slight, tiny appearance, right. who's three or something, three yeah. or four, yeah. I think. Believe. Christine is a little down on her luck. She works yeah. at a fast-food taco joint yep. called Casa Taco House, which right. is House Taco House, <laughs> right. they keep making fun of it yeah. in the play. <laughs> and she and Marty begin sort of a friendship in a weird kind of mm-hmm. interesting way, more than just a landlord and a tenant. They it, kind of need each other for certain things, yeah. but yet they object to each other because of other things. And Julian Parker's character, whose only name 
that he goes by is poet. Because he writes poetry. <laughs> and, he, and he expounds poetry every mm-hmm. now and then. Yeah. He plays Leah's estranged boyfriend. Yeah, she keeps saying of. he's not my boyfriend. Not the he's father not my boyfriend. of the child. We know that. No. That's, that's established early on. But yeah. she and he have had a past relationship, which you get the feeling that she's trying to run away from. Well, he had substance issues, and so she blames the substance ish, you know, abuse for some of the problems, which may or may not be true. And so he's trying to clean up his act for her. You love this play because you like productions that are about... Ordinary people in fairly extraordinary circumstances showing all their flaws. Yeah, and that's the kind of movies I like, too. These are just sort of regular people, and we get a glimpse into their life and what their circumstances are and how they're dealing with it. And I think you learn a lot more about how to deal with things in your own life when you're watching other people sort of go through issues that you probably don't have. I mean, I don't have abusive people in my life. I don't have an apartment that has a hole in the floor, etc. But watching them sort of navigate those things, I think is very instructional, as opposed to a superhero movie where people are flying around or a big splashy musical where, I mean, I love those, but what I really like is... You don't like the superhero stuff. stuff I don't like superhero stuff at all. I mean, I've tried to watch them and I end up laughing and turning it off because it's so stupid. (laughs) Even good ones, ones that got good reviews, I'm like, this is ridiculous. And that's true of any of those things. I watched Logan, which was the Wolverine movie, and I thought it was was stupid. With Hugh Jackman. Yeah, I just thought, why am I watching this? There's no reason for me to watch this. Speaking of Hugh Jackman, you know, he's going to appear on Broadway again next year. That's right. What, As what? Professor Harold Hill oh, in The Music Man. Right, the Music Man, yeah. My first reaction, other than the fact that he's immensely talented and can probably do anything, isn't he a little old in the tooth to play Hill, or does it I matter? I don't think so. I'm not sure Robert Preston, who did the original, was particularly young and spunky. Yeah. I think he could pull it off. He's, he has to have that patter, you know, yeah. where he can, that, that sort of greasy salesman, I can sell you anything, including a tuba kind of a quality. Yeah. And I think Hugh Jackman has that. He's not one of my favorite I think so people, too. but I, I think he'd be good in that role probably. Okay. Well, we were talking about Landladies, the world premiere play now at Northlight Theater by Sharon Rothstein, directed by Jess McLeod, starring Shanisa Davis, Leah Carpell, and Julian Parker. Now, we spent a few moments with Leah in the lobby after the show, yeah. and you talked to her for a minute. Let's have a listen to that. Okay. Well, we have just seen a play at the North Light Theater. It is called Land Ladies, and we are very lucky that we have one of the actors here, the lead character, one of the lead characters, Leah Carpell, who plays Christine. Hi, Leah. Hi, thanks for having me. Full disclosure here, I have known Leah, who is a Chicago actress, although she's also performed in New York and other places. We may talk about that in a minute, but I have known Leah since she was born. Her parents, Helen and Teresa, are two grad school friends of mine, and a few years after school, she came along, and I watched her go from, you know, an awkward little kid, which we all were, and there are embarrassing videos of both of us in existence when she was a child into quite an accomplished young lady and one of my favorite actresses. Thank you. That's nice. It's a big compliment coming from you because you see a ton of theater. I do see a lot. I do see a lot of theater. And I've seen a number of things here, and I've usually liked what I've seen, and I really like this. Is this uh, your first show here at Northlight? No, I've done one other show at Northlight. I think it was about six years ago, and it was called Commons of Pensacola. The Commons of Pensacola, which was a show by the actress Amanda Peet. Oh, she wrote it? Yeah, she wrote it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. And how is this show different from that one? 
Um, this show is different because it was a world premiere. So that one had already had a production. So it was set when we got into rehearsal. There wasn't the playwright wasn't there. There wasn't any changes in the scripts. This one was the first time it's ever been done. So the playwright was there for about a week of the rehearsal. Did she do a lot of changes? She didn't do a ton of changes, but she did do some. And that's you know with a world premiere, you never kind of know how it's going to end up turning out. So it's a lot of work, but work I like to do. I like to be in new place. Yeah, it's great to be on the ground floor. Yeah. Did she take suggestions from you guys too? Oh yeah, she did. She definitely did. I mean, sometimes playwrights have trouble seeing, just charting one character's journey, and then that's your job as an actor. So you can kind of point out... like You focus in on that one character. Exactly. This doesn't... Why Why do I do this after I've done this? And then they can change little things. Even sometimes it's just a word here or there uh-huh. that needs to be different. Have you worked with either of the other two actors before? I never have, and I love both of them. I'm so lucky to be... Did you know about stage. them at all, or had you been familiar with their work? I did. I, I'd seen both of them in plays, and Julian uh, did Passover last year at Steppenwolf, and he was so incredible in that. So I was really excited about getting to do it with both of them, yeah. Yeah, they're both wonderful. And what's neat about the show is they're three very distinct, different people. Yes. Not only are you physically different, but coming from different places in your lives. I think that part's really interesting. Yeah. Um, what do you hope people take away from the show? I hope that people just gain a little bit of empathy for people that are in bad situations or don't have all the resources that most people that are coming to the theater have and what they have to do in order to just survive day to day. I hope that's what people take away from the show. Yeah, we should probably say your character, Christine, is a young woman who works at a fast food place, has a small child, has difficulty finding a place to rent. She eventually does from a woman, and they become sort of friends, sort of enemies. I mean, it's an interesting, really interesting... Yeah, it's really ambiguous. Di- yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting dynamic, and then there is sort of a boyfriend uh-huh. of yours involved. Also ambiguous. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's all kind of up in the air. I mean, it's, it's a real slice of a really small part of these people's lives, but it makes a huge difference to them, and as a result, we can see what some of the ramifications are. So I think the play is very perceptive. Yeah. Has this writer written other things? Yeah, she wrote a play that was here a few years ago called By the Water, which I think was about Hurricane Katrina, the aftermath of that. Oh, and wow. she has a play that is going to be at Victory Gardens next year. What's play. the playwright's name? We can. Oh, Sharon Rothstein. And she's actually out of New York. And okay. she writes for the show Suits on USA. She's okay. a writer for that show. So that's sort of her full time job. Cool. Yeah. Now, you've done shows in Chicago as well as New York. Yes. And what other places, or what, what are some of your favorites? My favorite shows? Yeah. Well, I work a lot with this playwright, Sam Hunter, who I did uh, his show, The Whale, here. Oh, I saw and that. that. And so since then, I've worked with that playwright a lot. And I've gotten to go to New York with his shows, which is great. And he's my favorite playwright to work with. And then I also work with this director named Lee Sunday Evans, um, who is an old college friend of mine, oh, who wow. is an incredible director. And so if I can do anything with either of those two people, I'm there. <laughs> and also probably if they have a role that you're at all yes. good for, they would probably you know call on you to, yeah. to do that. Yeah, cool. hopefully. Yeah. Well, I encourage everyone to come and see the show. It plays until April... April 20th. April 20th. Okay, yeah. so you've got a couple of weeks after this podcast comes out. I think you will find a riveting afternoon or evening, and thank you for taking some time to talk to us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> okay. That was fun. Awfully nice of her to spend time with us yeah. after doing a 
Well, it's a 90-minute play nonstop. But it's pretty and, intense. And she's, she's on stage. She's on stage every scene. Yeah. She's a workhorse in this play. <laughs> she really is. What a delightful young woman and what a very talented actress. Yeah, yeah. She's done a lot of good things here and other places like you heard. She loves it, and Chicago seems to like her. I think so. Something else we saw recently, and we both enjoyed very, very much. Unfortunately, I'm, so, I'm sorry, listeners, it's closed now. But we saw a production of a, well, I can't even really call it a play. Maybe it is a musical. Play with music. Play maybe. with music yeah. called The Total Bent. Yeah. The Total Bent. Now, I have their playbill here, which is printed on what is really a poster-sized piece yeah, of paper. It is. It's very unique. I've never seen anything like this. One can hear this. <laughs> <laughs> the Total Bent is text, music, and lyrics by the critically acclaimed singer, songwriter, founder, and leader of the Negro Problem, Stu. Mm-hmm who did a show called Passing Strange yep. in New York. Which I saw, which I several loved. Several years ago. Yeah. You, you you enjoyed that. Yeah, and actually they filmed it. I think I have a video of it somewhere and a DVD. They filmed the show. Well, The Total Bent was a co-production of Haven Theater and About Face Theater, both theaters here in Chicago. And it tells the story of an older man who's been an established gospel singer right. for most of his career. Kind of 50s, 60s. Very, very well known, who's sort of on the wane in his career, but he's got a son who gets involved with him in the studio one day writing songs. Mm -hmm. And this piece, the production of this piece was just tremendous. It was in a rather weird rectangular space at the Den Theater. Very elongated rectangle. Elongated (laughs) from one end to the other, like a football field, a mini football field, let's call it. Uh, Like half a tennis court sort of thing. Yeah. And they had... Like just two or three rows all stretched all the way along and scenes played way stage left, way stage right, in the middle, you know, so every once in a while you had a scene right in front of you. And they had six or seven professional musicians on stage. Guitar player, bass player, drummer, two keyboard players, a woodwind player, a brass player. Some of which were characters in the show, too. And would respond to the interaction. But the play itself only had five actors. Are you aware of that? Just five. Hmm. The the five guys. Yeah, that's true. And they did absolutely everything. Robert Cornelius, good friend of the show, he's been on this program before. Mm -hmm. He played the older gospel singer named Joe Roy. And his son was played, Marty, was played by somebody absolutely phenomenal who I've <laughs> never seen before, yeah. who's going to be a big, big star. Would I you agree? So. Yeah, I hope so. His name is Gilbert Domeli. He's a native of Miami, Florida, recently seen in Porchlight's production of Memphis and the Paramount production of Legally Blonde. What a fantastic voice. What a great yeah. performer. Yeah. He's, he's also cut like a bodybuilder you do get some skin shots <laughs> and you get yeah. a lot of that yeah. yeah this was a marvelous show from beginning to end you and i both really loved it as a whole we, we love the production s- itself. we had yeah. some problems with the storytelling yeah it's it's a little and i think purposefully that way because Stu kind of writes that way it's a little bit not confusing but a little bit like well wait i thought we were doing this why are we doing that and so you're you're taken out of it a couple of times because you're like trying to put it together and then finally you go like you know what i'm not supposed to do that so i'll just go with it yeah try not to 
parse it together yeah, quite as much. Yeah, because it's not plot much. written, although there certainly is a plot, but that's not the whole point of it. Yeah, I should say not so much the storytelling, but the narrative. There were holes yeah, in the narrative that you had to kind of fill in for yourself, but everybody could have a different opinion about that. What fill, yeah. what that fill-in was. Which we decided probably is what they wanted, so probably once what they you wanted. went with it, it was fine. I mentioned uh, Robert Cornelius being in the show. Also, I will say that the director is a woman named Lily Ann Brown, who's a native Chicagoan. She works as a director, actor, and educator, both locally and regionally. She'll be directing the world premiere, another world premiere, mm. of Lottery Day, which mm. you and I are going to see in about a week or so. Yep. This is the ultimate play in Ike Holter's Reitland saga, Several weeks ago, I saw Red Rex, and we had the director and one of the actresses in the play on. That was Ike Holter's penultimate piece in his seven-play saga Uh about Reitland. This Lottery Day is the final piece in his epic saga. Ah, This will be my first one by him. I have not seen anything by him. I think he'll enjoy it quite a lot. And uh, I'll throw a little teaser out there. Okay. We're trying to get... Lillian Brown and Robert Cornelius on the show mm-hmm. on the next program mm-hmm. on the next episode. So listeners, pay attention to your podcast, wherever <laughs> you get your podcasts. And when it comes up, you'll want to listen in for Lillian Brown and Robert Cornelius on our next program. If we don't get them, you'll hear Gary and I impersonating the two of them. So uh, <laughs> listen carefully and see if it's really us. I have to work on my gospel singing. <laughs> I know. Which, the whatever music you do, and lyrics are absolutely yeah. fantastic in this show. And whatever you do, depending on who plays who, neither of us are going to be as good as he was. He was wonderful. And, and why is a show that's so good and got such good reviews, why does it have to close? Well, it's very hard to keep casts together. I think they did extend this one they did. as much as they could. Well, for instance, Robert Cornelius, who was exceptional, he was. exceptional in the total bent, is now in Lottery Day, right. the so new Culture play. So mm-hmm. he had that. And, and you couldn't and have the show without him. And that's at the Goodman. Yeah. And that's, yeah. you know, good pay for an actor. Yeah. You can't turn that down. Yeah. Love the total bent. Yep. I hope it gets revived sometime soon. The choreography, by the way, was great. It. You should. We should also mention that. in this tiny space. Yeah, yeah. There were these two guys who were kind of like the Supremes. I called them, but they were <laughs> they like were the backup good. singer kind of guys, and they and were wonderful. Wasn't one of them the choreographer? One of them was one. Of the, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. One of them was so the he was doing his own choreographic work. Yeah, yeah they were the backup singers they for were. the young uh, new gospel singer. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's just a wild. I think ride it'll be. It'll really somebody else will do it. Somebody else will do it. Keep your eye open for it. Have you had any experiences at the theater recently where you were annoyed by other theater patrons? For instance, today, did the cell phones bother you? The cell phones going off? I didn't even hear them. Really? No. Maybe I thought it was part of the show. Well, there was some cell phone phone usage in the show, and there was some ringing on stage, but... No, there were three that went off on the show today. Well, I mentioned going to Red Rex a few weeks ago, and Uh that's a very small theater, 55 seats, and we were right in the front row. So we had excellent seats, and the actors are right there in front of you. It was a slightly older audience for whatever reason that evening that we went. And during one of the quieter moments of the play where two characters are having a very intense conversation about something, The older gentleman sitting directly to my left had his legs crossed, 
And you know how in the morning your tendons will snap in your ankles (laughs) or your wrist? He was wobbling his foot back and forth, making it snap uncontrollably. (laughs) Snap. 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 Like cracking his knuckles. Then he turned it back in the other direction, (gasps) and it would snap some more. Oh, my God. Couldn't (laughs) couldn't you wait for the big production number to, like, snap your foot? (laughs) How do you become so unaware? Uh. So unself-aware. Probably a habit that he had, and he just didn't even realize he was doing it. That would have driven me nuts. That would have driven me crazy. It did It did drive me nuts. That leads me into a story I wanted to tell you about. Yes. Yes. There's a very smart fish. This is probably the worst segue in American <laughs> podcasting history. But Speaking of smart fish. I was talking about being self-aware and you know, knowing what you're doing when you're in public and you're in a crowd. A tiny fish has joined an elite group of animals that can recognize themselves in the mirror. Oh. Until now, the only species to have passed the mirror test, widely considered the gold standard for animal intelligence, and I'll get to the mirror test in just a moment in more detail, were great apes, bottlenose dolphins, killer whales, Eurasian magpies, and a single Asian elephant. <laughs> just <laughs> one. Yeah, probably named Herb. Einstein yeah. <laughs> or something like that. But to that list can now be added the cleaner wrasse, that's W-R-A-S-S-E, a four-inch striped fish that lives in coral reefs. For the mirror test, scientists in Germany placed a mark on the fish in a place that could only be seen in a mirror. After initially seeming confused by the mirror, the fish appeared to check their reflections multiple times and tried to remove the mark by rubbing their bodies on a hard surface. Ah. So he knew it was on him. Well, this is apparently the conclusion that Uh these German scientists, our German scientists are smarter than your German scientists (laughs) kind of thing. Uh, The fish didn't act the same way in controlled experiments with no mirror or when the mark was placed on the mirror. Co-author of the study, Alex Jordan, tells the Daily Telegraph, a British newspaper, that the fish, quote, behaviorally fulfills all criteria of the mirror test. Wow. Is this possible that a a tiny four-inch fish has self-awareness? He must. He knew it was him. In conclusion, this guy says, the species is either self-aware or the gold standard test needs upgrading. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that could be. How about if we put the fish in a theater space in a really quiet play and see if it makes noise? Yeah, right. I saw a play last night, Frank, that I wanted to tell you about. Yeah. My producer and I went to a number at Writer's Theater. A number oh, okay. is called. Uh, it's a Carol Churchill play directed oh. by Robin Witt. It's a two-hander, uh, an older gentleman and a young guy who plays his son in multiple manifestations it's a play about cloning oh it's a play about parenthood and correcting your mistakes and seeing if you can go back and make things better this older gentleman decides to clone his son because he wants to start over and maybe (laughs) correct the mistakes he made when he was younger interesting Uh, it's called a number I have a number of things to say about this play. Okay. All right. uh, one is that it was only 65 minutes long with no intermission. Rather oh. 
thin, I thought, for the weightiness of the subject matter yeah. and the themes that could have been explored. It wasn't long enough. Yeah. There was you much more. more to be yeah. investigated and much more to be revealed to us. Like the total bent, there were pieces of the narrative that we had to fill in ourselves that I was confused about. And at the end, I thought, well, I don't really know what the truth is. For half the play, one of the characters, at least, is lying a lot. Yeah. Then finally, he decides, well, that wasn't true. Here's the truth. Well, now how do we believe this character? You yeah, can't believe yeah. it. And there was no other outside evidence of what the truth really was. It was just this guy telling us. I will say that the performances, especially by the young guy his name is Nate Berger playing several as i said iterations of this now, when older he would, man's son when he would clone the son did he have to start over with him as a baby or did he clone him as an adult unclear i believe okay. he cloned them and they were babies obviously coming out of the test tube or whatever they come out of but, but he didn't just... but he didn't raise them Oh, As didn't. babies. We you mean we didn't see him raise them? We didn't see him raise them. The, clearly, there was one of the three iterations that was the real child. The original. The original. I'm still confused as to which one that is, though a friend oh. of ours who also saw the play told us which one he thought it was. And so he works not, for writers, so okay. maybe he has some insight. But it was not chronological. It was not chronological. I was deeply confused a number of times. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of rare for me in the theater. I don't usually get yeah. confused by the plot line, but I had some trouble with that. Okay. The, again, the performances were wonderful. The two actors... They were working their butts off for 65 minutes, doing the very, very best they can. And this young guy, he had to play three iterations of this son. But since they were raised differently, they were different people, Uh even though they were exactly the same age and they looked very much the same. Mm -hmm. He did a little something with his hair and they did some quick costume changes. It was a nice production. Writers okay. does the big just space great or the stuff. small one? It was in the smaller space, okay. the Jillian Theater. Writers always does yeah. really high class productions, and the values are always just extraordinary. And this was no exception. It had some narrative and logic issues. Okay. All right. <laughs> I, I, I thought. You were at uh, another local of our theaters mm-hmm. called. The Drury Lane Theater. Yes, I was. We don't go out to Drury Lane very often because Drury Lane is out in Oak Brook. Yeah, that's closer to where I live. Much closer to where you live. Easier for me to go to. It's a regional theater, professional company, and they do exclusively musicals. There used to be like five Drury Lanes. There was, uh, at at the height of its peak, Tony DeSantis was the big entrepreneur, and there was one, um, well, there was the Drury Lane Oak Brook, which I'll talk about in a minute. There was one in Water Tower Place, which is now the Broadway... Broadway Playhouse. Broadway Mm -hmm. Playhouse, yeah. Marriott Lincolnshire was a Drury Lane. Now it's in a Marriott hotel, and they also do a season of musical musical revivals. Yeah, yeah. There evidently was one in McCormick, place, which only lasted for like one season, and then there was the original in Evergreen Park, Illinois, which is where it started. Loved that one. Used to go. It was in the round. Well, they all kind of were, and then they've all gotten kind of reconfigured. Um, Oak Brook is complete proscenium, but that one started off as a tent originally with the Martinique restaurant, and then eventually... Yeah, you'd have dinner at the Martinique, and then you'd Mm -hmm. walk over to the Mm -hmm. theater, so it was kind of dinner theater, but not like the old candlelight playhouse out in Berwyn, where... 
you actually ate at your table. Mm, correct. And then they'd clear the plates and the show, the show would start. start. Or some places where you're eating while the show's going Yeah, I, on. I saw all my first musicals and fell in love with yeah. musical theater at the Candlelight and at the Drury Lane Evergreen. I would go there as a kid. I would see children's theater there. Mm-hmm. And then I, when I got to be like a teenager, a little bit older, I would see some of those shows. I remember seeing Elkie Summer in a show. I remember they seeing. They bring a lot of stars in yeah, to do the shows. I remember That's seeing right. Virginia Mayo and Milo O'Shea in some show. Wow. And then you talk about talk about cell phones. I it, I was reminded when I was watching that show, the play was going on. It was kind of a two character play, but some people arrived and went and sat in the second row while the play was going on. And Milo O'Shea stopped, looked at him, and went, "Missed the bus," and then went on with the play. <laughs> So that's how they dealt with those kind of interruptions. There were no cell phones back then. But he just, they were like, what? But you recently went to the Oak Brook one, which is the only one still really in existence, right? Well, it's the only one that still has the name on it. Jury Lane. Yeah, the other ones yeah. exist, but it's still called Jury Lane. And I saw Mamma Mia production Mama of it. It's just been extended, so people like it. They want to go see it, and that's what those shows... They have a huge subscription base out of Jury Lane. They really do. And there are people, you know, like my mother-in-law, I like a musical. I want to see a musical, none of this other stuff. So people, you know... Sounds like my friend Roscoe. <laughs> that's all he wants to see. Yeah. Dancing girls and people with beautiful voices and beautiful yeah. faces and beautiful hair. Which this play had. It's a very good production of Mamma Mia. The lead actress is Susan McGonagall as Donna. And she's really quite good. Her daughter is good. I mean, the performances are good. The choreography is good. I actually saw it in previews, and I thought it was really quite well done. They don't really bring in outside actors anymore to these productions, do they? They, they cast essentially from the Chicago pool of... Very yeah. talented oh, yeah. musical theater artists. Yeah, they don't have their own company like some no, places do. It's not where a they rep use a, company, like a no. Steppenwolf yeah. or something. But they do use Chicago yeah. people. Usually it's just local people when you read their bios. They've performed at Porchlight and all the different kind of places. But I had a good time. The cool thing you're talking about dinner is we went on a Saturday and there's a 2 o'clock show and a 7.30 show. But they have dinner there. At 5 o'clock. So you can go to the show and then do dinner or do dinner and then go to the next show. Then did people at the next table who were going to the 7.30 show overhear your conversation? Or <laughs> did they care? Or were you careful about that? Or um, what? No. Well, I didn't do they wanna... seat you in specific sections and you're closed off from the 7.30 people? I didn't want to tell them how it ended. If you're going to Mamma Mia, chances are you've already seen it. Or you know a hell of a lot about it. Or you know, it. yeah. You're, you've seen, you know, you the, maybe saw the movie. Either of the movies. There's two movies. And, uh, but if you like Mamma Mia, it was a, a good one to go to, and it's been extended through the 14th. That's April 14th. April 14th, yeah. Out at the Jury Lane. Uh-huh. Oak Brook. Oak Brook. Jimmy Carter is now the longest living U.S. president. Did you know this? Oh, I mean, he's lived to be the oldest? He became the longest living president in United States history last Friday, etching his name next to another milestone as he continues a rich post-presidential life that has spanned nearly four decades. Jimmy Carter's legacy as a president is not all that sterling. Many people thought his presidency was maybe a bit of a failure. Well, he didn't get reelected. And he didn't get reelected. He's a one-term president. But I always liked Jimmy Carter. I thought he was a true civil servant, a true American. Couldn't have been more sincere in his comments and his approach to issues and the American public. 
I clearly remember him doing televised addresses to the nation, yeah, which yeah. doesn't really happen all that much anymore. I think <laughs> I think Obama did quite a number of them, but but I also think Jimmy Carter's a lot of his legacy is since he was president. When you think of Habitat for Humanity and still the kinds of things that, that he does, a week every year he goes off and still right. builds houses. Right. Yeah. So his his he wasn't one of these people who just sort of disappeared and kind of retired and hung out painting or whatever. I won't mention any names, but yeah. Yeah, he was our 39th president. He reached the age of 94 years and 172 days, making him a day older than former President George Bush was when he died in November. Uh The record comes more than three years after Mr. Carter announced that he would receive treatment for cancer that had been discovered in his brain. That's right. But I am perfectly at ease with whatever comes, Mr. Carter said at the time in August of 2015. He does Sunday school lessons in his hometown of Plains, Georgia. He teaches at Emory University and much, much more. 94 years, 172, more than 172 days now. The tireless resolve and heart have helped him to improve life for millions of the world's poorest people. I just thought I'd mention Jimmy yeah, Carter because, you know, he doesn't off. get mentioned very often. Mm-hmm. The number is running at Writer's Theater at the Jillian, in the Jillian space, through June 9th. So quite a long time. They always run shows very long there. So uh-huh. you've got plenty of time to see it. Make your own judgments about it. As I said, it's only 65 minutes. How yeah. can you go wrong? Yeah. If people are staying home, however, I will mention something that I saw recently that I thought was quite interesting on, I believe, either Netflix or Amazon, a show called The Highwaymen. It's about the two guys who tracked down Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, this is with Kevin Costner Uh and Woody Harrelson. Yes, it is. The two detectives, Uh lawmen. I guess, yeah. who tracked down and, tracked down and ambushed and, Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, yeah. First of all, they're two interesting actors. And interesting relationship between the two of them. And it's also funny to see Bonnie and Clyde sort of on the periphery. You do see them somewhat, but it's mostly about these two guys and, and how they're able to find them and capture them. I thought it was kind of different. I've always been a big a fan of the movie Bonnie and Clyde. But this is a, a different kind of perspective. Sure. So if people are going to stay home, I would recommend that. Something else premiering on April 9th is a short miniseries on the FX channel, Fosse Verdon. Oh, yeah, definitely. I want to see that. Yeah. So that should be very interesting. Sam Rockwell and Michelle Williams are playing Fosse and Gwen Verdon. You love musicals. What's your favorite movie musical? One of my favorite musicals was not a very good movie, unfortunately. And one of my... Other musicals, it's not necessarily my favorite, is probably one of the best movie musicals, because they're two different entities. Do you want me to guess? Um, is that what you're leading up no, to? No, no. I'm just <laughs> setting it up. It's like, I love this, this, this show, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. I really love it. I think that's a pretty it's entertaining an okay movie. Mu- it's an okay movie. Yeah. Same thing with Bye Bye Birdie. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great yeah, show, Bye but Bye the movie's Birdie's not good. No, no, the Bye movie's Bye not, Birdie, good. not good. And then Chicago, I think, is an okay show. But I thought it was a fantastic movie. They should have kept movie. Cheetah Rivera <laughs> in Bye Bye Birdie. Why she didn't get that part, I don't know. Yeah. I like the play Chicago, but I thought the movie was wonderful. I thought the movie just opened it up and did great things. A whole new experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it really was. So those those are the two that pop into my head right now. How about you? I, I think my favorite movie musical is Oliver. Movie musical, yeah. I that, think so. They did a good job with that. Love the story, and I love the filmmaking, and it really gave you a sense of... 
that time period of London. Yep. It's very Dickensian. It is just so beautifully made, that film. That's probably my favorite movie musical. Though I do love The Music Man as a movie adaptation of a, of a yeah. play. And actually, I think My Fair Lady is pretty good, too, as a, as a musical. Movie musical. Now, we've had guests on many, many times, Frank, and we always end our podcasts with a segment that I have called The Kiss of Death. Mm-hmm. And it frequently makes our guests a little squirmy. Until they realize what it is. Until they fine. realize yeah. what it is. So I've been thinking about a new moniker for this segment. Tell me if this rings good to you. As opposed to... Getting rid of the kiss of death. You mean As opposed get, to calling it kiss, kiss of, of death. death. Okay. We're still a, it's still a celebration of a life. Okay. I'll be seeing you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in our I'll be seeing you life celebration today, Frank, we're going to talk about a director and choreographer. In 1998, Stanley Donan, mm. director and choreographer of classic musicals such as Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, right. also a terrific, terrific a movie. movie. I think that's an original movie. One of the movie. few yeah. movie musicals that was originally a movie musical and not a yeah. stage play. But it is a stage play now. Eventually yeah. was. <laughs> Funny Face with Gene Kelly, Singing in the Rain in 1952. He was presented in 1998 with an honorary Oscar. As part of his witty, modest thank you, he did a little flourish of tap. Oh, I don't know if you remember that. I don't. That's 20 years ago, yeah. 21 years ago. It was possibly the last significant live act by anyone from the great age of the MGM musicals. Oh. For decades, Donan was overshadowed by Kelly. Donan deferred and said only that they made a grand team. For the Singing in the Rain title number, for instance, likely Kelly, the choreographer, made up his own splashy moves. But in the middle of the number, the camera, you remember this, the camera lifts and soars up a few feet up on a crane. And while no one can spell out that effect exactly, the exhilaration and the rising are vitally connected. Donan decided to do that. That was his directorial decision. Born in South Carolina at the age of nine, Donan saw Fred Astaire in Flying Down to Rio. Another great musical. I didn't know what I wanted to do to be, to be around or with or to relate to or anything. I just knew that there was something about the magic of the movies that galvanized me. His father ran a string of women's clothing stores in the South Carolina area, and he started taking Stanley with him on his business trips to New York for the fashion shows, and they would catch up on musicals during the evenings. Get this. At the age of 16, Stanley left high school and his father gave him money to buy a ticket to New York, Mm. where he promptly got a job in the chorus of Pal Joey in 1940. As one did. (laughs) Starring Gene Kelly in the lead. The next year, Donan helped Kelly do the choreography for Best Foot Forward, first on stage, then on screen. By the time Donan was 18, he was choreographing the alter ego number in the film Cover Girl. That was in 1944. That's the one where Kelly dances with himself. Two images. Anchors Away in 1945, in which Kelly dances with the cartoon mouse Jerry. Yep. From Tom and Jerry. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. The director on Royal Wedding in 1951, in which Fred Astaire seems to dance up the walls and across the ceiling in that one-room shot. A scene, by the way, which was later paid homage to by Lionel Richie in his music video for Dancing on the Ceiling, which was directed by 
Stanley Donen. Oh, it was. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. I believe they, they erected this room, and it, it had these sort of counterweights so that it, when Fred Astaire went to step on the side wall, the room would start to tilt. It wasn't yeah. turned by stagehands. They found that oh. to be a little too dangerous. Uh-huh. They wanted him to have more control as to how the tilt of the room went. And, of course, the camera was then bolted to the outside frame of the room and spinned along with it. So it uh-huh. looked like he was... Dancing on the ceiling. Wow. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which we talked about in 1954, was all Donan's idea, and many reckoned it crazy, a musical about Oregon backwoodsmen looking for wives. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The studio let Donan do it his way, but for one thing, they would not agree to filming in Oregon in winter. Michael Kidd did the choreography, by the way. Oh, really? Michael Kidd, yeah. Donan filmed two Broadway hits at Warner Brothers, The Pajama Game in 1957 Mm -hmm. and Damn Yankees in 1958. I think that former, The Pajama Game, we were just talking about movie musicals, I think it's terribly neglected, undeservedly so. I think it's a far better movie than people actually give it credit for. The dances were designed by a relative newcomer, Bob Fosse. <laughs> Maybe that'll be in the Fosse Gwen A measure Gwen of Donan's show. eye for talent. I should say that much of what I'm talking about is excerpted from The Guardian, the uh, UK newspaper. And this is by David Thompson, probably our finest modern film historian, critic, mm-hmm. all around doyen of all things cinematic. By 1960, the Metro musical was no more, and Donan became an accomplished director of comedy, romance, and spoof thrillers, such as the huge hit Charade. Oh, I love Charade. Don't you know? Uh Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn. Mm -hmm. And Two for the Road with the late, great Albert Finney and Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. Donan was a modest man, quieter by far than Kelly, and never himself a brilliant dancer. However, he excelled at collaboration, which musicals, as you know, Frank, more than any other film genre, or theatrical genre, for that matter, are reliant on, and which enabled him to create masterpieces. Donan said, nothing is more fun than finding someone who stimulates you and who can be stimulated by you. The result, rather than just adding up to two and two multiplies itself and you find yourself carried away on the crest of excitement. Mm. Donan was married and divorced five times, <laughs> including to the actress Yvette Mimieu, his fourth wife. Mm. It's said that he had a cushion in his living room embroidered with the words, eat, drink, and remarry. <laughs> <laughs> Well, sounds like he'd lived by that. And Donan is survived by his partner, the writer, director, and actor, Elaine May. Oh. And partners for many, many years. Uh-huh. Stanley Donan, director of Golden Age Musicals, was 94. My goodness. He was a, a groundbreaker. Yeah. Uh, he and Kelly. And uh, as and kind as of the I, history of the movies. As He's, I mentioned earlier, he doesn't really get quite as much credit as Gene yeah, Kelly did. Yeah. But he was the brains behind a lot of it. Yeah. If you'd like to support Booth One in bringing you the best and lively conversation about the arts and popular culture and great pieces like our friend Stanley Donan here, you can go to our website at www.booth-one.com. That's dash O-N-E dot com, yep. Frank. Yep. And click on the donate button. It's easy. It's feel good. It's tax deductible under our 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity. Any and all contributions would be greatly appreciated. Mm -hmm. Mm. 
Well, thanks, Frank. It's great to see you again. We yeah, haven't done an episode just the two of us in quite no, some time. No, it was fun. It, it's way fun. We yeah. need to do it more often. Visit www.booth-one.com for prior episodes and more information about our program. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski. And Frank Taranjo. Saying so long and keep listening. Yep.